No matter your thoughts on the Great Resignation, or as some call it, the Great Reshuffle, recruiting and hiring has become as important as ever. With an unmatched enthusiasm for the contact center business and over two decades of experience, Matt Beckwith shares insights on how to improve the recruiting and hiring process this week on Next NQ. We talk about why recruiting and hiring is so important for contact centers and how it's changed since the pandemic began, the biggest opportunity in contact center recruiting and hiring, how technology may be impeding your recruiting efforts, why new hires should not start on Mondays, and how your contact center can become an employer of choice in your market. Let's get to it. Welcome to Next in Q, the podcast for contact center and customer experience professionals. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy To, your service team's personal coach, giving them the process, resources, and insights to deliver the perfect customer experience over the phone. Learn more at HAPPITU.com. Now, here's your host, Rob Dwyer. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining another episode of Next in Q. Today, Matt Beckwith is joining me. Hey, Matt, how are you? I'm doing good, Rob. How are you? I am fantastic. Um, we had a good time just before we hopped on here talking about uh, some of our, our sports heroes in the past. Uh, fun fact, even though you're a Northern California guy, you actually uh, spent some time near my neck of the woods. Uh, but let's let's talk about kind of your history before we get started. We're going to talk about hiring and recruiting and all of that stuff. But before we get started... Tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of how you got to where you are today. Uh, yeah, so I am uh, in Northern California my entire life, except for, as I mentioned before, I, I did a little stint in college in Missouri, big fan of the, uh, 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 you know, growing up of the, the Kansas City Chiefs, and so I was uh, thrilled to spend a little bit of time in Missouri, um, and uh, I always say I'm going to go back and, and and take my wife and family out there, but uh, it's it's a uh, it hasn't yet happened, but I've been here in Northern California for, like I said, my entire life where my wife and I have raised um, a wonderful family. Uh, I've successfully deployed two daughters into the real world and uh, they have <laughs> deployed a couple of grandkids. So um, uh, so I got a, a couple of promotions uh, in the last several years, but, uh, and I've been uh, in the contact center business, um, what feels like my entire life from a, a chance missed interview at another company uh then i got steered into the contact center world and i have never looked back and it's been like i don't know 27 or 28 years that uh, i've never heard anyone talk about their kids as being deployed into the world but i love it and i may have to steal that so well, well you know i i use that i i stole it from somebody years ago when i heard it and and i thought you know when i met my wife and we started talking about um our, our family ambitions. And I said, I want two daughters. I don't want three. I don't want one. I want four. I don't want boys. I want two daughters. And uh, having mostly brothers and one sister, um, I, I always, always wanted to have daughters. So I, I that's why I say I successfully that de we de deployed them on time, a little over budget. 
Um, but uh, but uh, very very proud of them both. They're always over budget. They're always <laughs> over budget. Well, just, just wait. Just wait until the grandkids. They're even way more over budget. <laughs> hey, I, we don't need to rush things here, Matt. Just <laughs> just put park that horse in the barn for right now. Uh, so <laughs> let's talk about uh hiring and recruiting i mean this is this is a hot topic i think not just for contact centers uh you know we have been hearing about hiring challenges about retention challenges in a variety of industries really since the pandemic began and now here we are we're you know kind of late 2022 um and there are a lot of things have changed from, in many cases, pay structure, but there are still a lot of challenges in um, hiring and retaining good talent. So we're going to talk about the hiring part today. So uh, let's just kind of start and maybe get a baseline out there. Like, why is recruiting and hiring so important for contact centers? Well, I mean, clearly, in every contact center that I've been involved in, it is the number one expense. It is it 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 uh, it um, uh, surpasses the expense for technology. Often um, surpasses the um, expense for facilities. Um, but it, it is it is the it is the the greatest cost. And even if you're a revenue generating profit center, um, you are very mindful of what it cost what it takes to run your operation and so anytime you hire somebody obviously it costs a ton of money to hire and train and onboard and then uh if you are continuously doing that then that that has negative impacts on the business so anytime you can stretch out the amount of time and people will want to work with you and be successful in your organization um the the the, the more beneficial it is to the organization yeah absolutely and and certainly just the training part, right? That's the time when agents are are really only a cost and they are not generating revenue for the company. Depending on your business, uh, that training time may run from a, a few days to quite a number of weeks. I have seen some training that lasts uh, the better part of two months. And that's a lot of time to be paying people that are not generating any revenue. Well, and you know, the other thing is you bring this up, but is it, 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 I'm always amazed at how many operations don't measure this. And this is a measurable thing. And so in my organizations, we measure it as TTP, so time to productivity, right? And so how much time does it take to be productive? And I don't mean how long does it take for an employee to get fully trained and then take their first call. Now, the, the day they take their first call, even if they have a team of people behind them that are supporting them, they have begun their journey to productivity, mm -hmm. but they are not there yet. And so all of the front-loaded costs for uh, for recruiting and, and going through the interview process and, and all the amount of time it takes for that, and you're taking other people in the organization out of their normal role, to do this thing, to participate in this recruiting and this hiring. At some point, you need to know what that number is. And so in my last organization, training was a couple of months. And we knew exactly how long it would take for people to become productive, which is why we always said, it doesn't matter if, if it normally takes two months, if it takes one person two months and two weeks, why do we care? It, it, 
we're going to be paid that back eventually. But understanding how to measure that, that's the first thing. And, and most organizations that I have been a part of um, and most people I've talked to don't actually measure that. They don't have a number where they can say, we know that it takes 17 and a half weeks to, to get a fully productive employee um, kind of soup to nuts. And that is, you're right, even if it's, and I've been in organizations where training was a couple of weeks and I've been in, in organizations where training is several weeks. And and uh, there's a lot can be said for if you make that training too short, you generally don't have much success down the road, but uh, at least measuring it and having a, a yardstick to make some improvements on is super important. Yeah, and you bring up some some other key points, right? There are so many people involved in getting that agent to productivity. So it starts with the people that are tasked with recruiting. Um, and that includes people doing the interviewing, which depending on your organization, may be the recruiting department. It could be someone in operations who has a, a job to do outside of right. uh, doing interviews. Uh, then you have uh, trainers which I've seen organizations where you don't have dedicated trainers, right? So you're pulling people out of production to, to mm -hmm. facilitate that. Uh, and then when you're kind of in that incubation stage, right? Um, when, when you're first taking those calls, most organizations use some type of incubation stage where there's some additional support. And again, that additional support is, is coming out of production. So there's just yeah. a, so much involved in, and supporting people to get there in addition to all, all the things that, that you're, you're just waiting on them to get to where yeah. they need to be. Exactly. So I'm, I mentioned uh, that we've been hearing a lot about hiring challenges since the pandemic began. I'm wondering from your perspective, has it changed recruiting and hiring practices and and if so how yeah i mean absolutely in the very beginning it was pure pandemonium right so everybody uh pretty much especially in our industry uh, you know can put that marker i think it was around week 17 of of 2020 where everybody said we're all going home right it was either the that that friday the ominous friday the 13th of march or um uh, or, or the you know the fifteenth, the sixteenth, the seventeenth, or the following week, everybody has the same story. They went home, and then when they started needing to ramp up, figuring out how, how do we how do we take this what used to be a, in most cases, and certainly for me and the organization I was in, it was brick and mortar, hundred percent. How do we move from brick and mortar um, interview process to a non brick and mortar um, interview process, and understanding the technology needs of the of the potential candidates and and, and, and then how are you searching for them and how are you marketing that? And again, because once everybody started hiring again, then their, their ability or their the opportunities for certainly a, a contact center representative were, were far greater than they were before because they could work anywhere. And, and even if they were regionally based, it said if you needed to be on the West Coast or you need to be in the East Coast or this time zone, tons of more competition. And that had a drastic impact. Some organizations didn't do well in moving that brick and mortar recruitment pro or any of their processes, but certainly in the beginning, the, the front door, the recruitment and the hiring and the training. Um, how do we move that from brick and mortar to um, the virtual? And that, that was the biggest challenge. And certainly the biggest challenge that we faced was how do we deliberately think about these things and make them work better in this environment rather than in um, 
in the old uh, brick and mortar. And that, that took us some time. We had some bumps and bruises, maybe some bloody noses and black eyes. And then we said, okay, we're going to, we're going to get better at this. Um, and eventually we did, and we hired a ton during the pandemic and got really good at it. But, um, yeah, I think it was a, a challenge for a challenge for many organizations, not just contact centers, but certainly as we've seen contact center employees still, um, work remotely, a, a great deal of them. So continuing that and getting really good at that process has been key. Yeah. I think a lot of people forget, right? We talk a lot about work at home. And I think people forget that recruiting and hiring from home has its own unique set of challenges that go with it. If you've always been a brick and mortar company, you know, day one is when you're collecting, you know, in the US at least, collecting IDs for I-9 and all of that stuff, right? And if you're hiring work at home, people that are, you know, quote unquote remote, you have to solve for that. And there are tools out there that solve for that. Yeah. But if you didn't already have that in place or weren't thinking about that, and then all of a sudden the demand for those tools goes through the roof, uh, it can, it can really throw up some challenges. Yeah. And the other thing is, is you, I want to, um, I want to go back to one thing that you said about work from home. And that was in the beginning, everybody said, okay, new mindset. We're going from brick and mortar to work from home. And one of the things that we learned very early on was we need to make a distinction. We're going to put an asterisk on that because work from home is not necessarily what you might be getting or what you need or what you want or what your team members can provide. You have to be very careful and think, is is this a work from anywhere? Because that's different. Is this a work from, uh, is this solely only remote? Does that mean that they can go work in a WeWork? Does that mean they can go work in a Starbucks? Does that mean that they can get a, like a MiFi and go work in their car? Does that mean that they can travel to their family member's house in another state or in another country? And so all of these things you have to stop and think, no, let's get very specific about what this means. And clearly, I remember uh, doing a work from home pilot many, many years ago in the healthcare space. And we said, okay, so we clearly have, we have to have a, a dedicated room with a lock. The door has to be shut, um, those kinds of things. But um, not, not every industry is doing that. And so really getting granular and very deliberate on what on what the organization means from work from home. And that starts from the recruitment. Like, what does your job posting say? How do you describe that in the um, in the interview? And I think that has been... That, that was a learning point as well. Yeah. Your industry really can dictate some of the requirements that have to be in place for that to be successful. And so certainly healthcare, right? Highly regulated. Or if you're in a financial industry, highly regulated, that's going to be very different than if you were just maybe doing some customer care for, for an e-commerce site or something like that. Yeah. Um, and as an organization, you definitely have to take those things into account when you're thinking yeah. about what your requirements are. So it's really great stuff. Obviously, it's still a challenge. We're still hearing about it. What are the mistakes that some organizations are making today when it comes to their recruiting. So we already talked about, right, being very granular with your requir- requirements in your job posting, but what other issues are are plaguing some organizations? 
Well, the one that gets me, it gets me all fired up. And I think about this all the time. So oh, for the last 25 plus years, I've called a contact center almost every day of my life. And probably for 15 plus years of it, it was several times a day because I had a long commute. Um, and that, you know, getting that, like that, that Intel, it's anecdotal, right? But it's anecdotal Intel. Um, I think that's an oxymoron, but getting that kind of for many, many, many years has taught me so much about this industry. But the other thing is when the pandemic started, I really thought, wait, we should be doing this on the candidate experience side. We should be looking at how everybody else is are posting jobs and what their what their systems are, right? And so early on, I thought, again, when we talk about moving from brick and mortar to purely virtual um, recruiting, uh, hiring, onboarding, and training, thinking, what are other companies doing? Because if you're in the market and you're trying to hire a class of 25 new customer service representatives or sales representatives, they can go, They, as I said earlier, they can go anywhere. Not uh, Now, if you're in a small community, maybe there's five other places they can go, but now they can go to 500 different places. And understanding what those other organizations are doing is so important to understanding um, kind of what your drop-off rate is. Every contact center leader understands what their abandonment, knows the importance of that abandonment rate. And you can schedule to your abandonment rate and what your customer threshold for pain is and things like that. But do you know what your candidate abandonment rate is? Do you know what your the processes you're putting your candidates through? And it, it always shocks me when I talk to contact center leaders, especially that are recruiting for um, for agents. I ask them, what's the process? Like, what system are you using? Are you using uh, Greenhouse, using Indeed? Are you only using LinkedIn? Are you using um, the, uh, you know, I just saw a, a job bot or one of these sites? Um, and have you walked through that process yourself? And oftentimes, like, I have no idea. Like, I get a, a list from my recruiter and that's who I call. But what about the people that are applying that are not that are, that are abandoned. Like just in e-com, we talk about abandoned shopping carts and contact centers, we talk about abandoned calls. What about abandoned candidates? And that number, if your HR recruiting team is not giving you that number, then you should ask for it because that might be eye-opening. Everybody in this industry that I've met um, has read or is very familiar with the work of Matt Dixon and the book, The Effortless Experience and the effect that effort has on customer satisfaction. Um, and loyalty. Well, the same can apply to candidates and potential candidates in the candidate experience. And I think about um, if 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 you have a job posting and the form asks them to do, you know, create a, a new login and uh, fill out, you know, a 20 question questionnaire, and then they have to upload docs in a certain format, and then they have to get another link and go, like if you're causing this effort, then you're ha you're going to have abandoned candidates. It is it, it has to be true, but if it, you know if you can reduce the effort, and again the old days of just mail in your resume are gone. And I understand that there's this signal versus noise trade off. So if you just say give me everything, then you're going to get a lot of noise. But if you have good processes in place and good um, scoring criteria, then you can take that you know, you can, you can separate the wheat from the chaff um, to use another metaphor, but so many organizations are trying to hire and trying to, you know, trying to hire another problem is they're trying to hire tomorrow instead of planning it <laughs> and trying to hire in yeah. six months. But if they're trying to hire tomorrow and then they, they 
their company's guidelines says you have to go through this form, answer these questions. And I say to the hiring manager, what can you do to make that more simple to get reduce the effort? And it, it, the more you can reduce the effort, the more likely you're going to get more applications. And that is um, that that is going to help you. And I believe in this is purely anecdotal, but the pandemic caused far more virtual hiring. And that virtual hiring meant there's a ton of new technology um, providers in that space. And those are the, those new companies are the ones that are understanding if we reduce that amount of effort or friction from the candidate side, the experience will be or for the the amount of applications or resumes that the company will get will will um will go up. And I think that's something that oftentimes most hiring managers, because they're in their brick and mortar mindset, aren't thinking what does the front door look like. I just care about what applications come to me, but they should be looking at what that front door looks like. Yeah. You brought up something that I think is honestly a little shocking sometimes because in the contact center, we have to be pretty good at forecasting when it comes to volume. And we also have to be good at forecasting our future staffing needs. And, and that includes right understanding kind of what our attrition is, what maybe seasonality factors we have so that we can yeah. plan ahead of time. Hey, I know I'm going to have to bring in new hires on X date so that they're ready and productive by the time I know this volume is going to show up or yeah. I know that this attrition is going to impact my staffing. So um, not everyone is great at that, but that needs to be part of the the conversation yeah. for well, sure. Not only is or not, not everybody great at that, but I always ask anytime somebody is um, responsible the workforce people they understand this but if the 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 rest of the the contact center organization i always ask them do you measure things like like mate like i prefer to look at mate mean absolute percentage error and i say we've made a forecast for the year in you know we finalized it um we might have gotten a rough draft in september october november but in december it's final and we we pretty much know what our volume is going to be and from uh, from the team that does that, we look and say, okay, in uh, in week four to week seven, what was your mean absolute percentage error? What were you were you three percent off, or were you twelve percent off? If you were twelve percent off, was there something in the business that we didn't predict? Was there something that we can then go back and say, oh, this is going to change the rest of our year? Um, and most organizations don't measure that, and and that is a that is a crucial number, especially when you're. It's the only way to forecast or to to know how well your forecast is. But the other thing is, like I said, Rob, I call a contact center every day, practically of my life, and I can't tell you how many contact centers for the from March of 2020 until still today, although it's far fewer today. You'll hear the recording in the uh, in the uh, auto attendant or the IVR that says due to um, uh, heightened call volume because of the pandemic, um, uh, wait times may, you know, may, may be longer. And I'm thinking, okay, in the very beginning, and I was thinking about cycle time, right? So when I called you in March, you, March of 2020, you said that, um, I get it. Crazy volume. Maybe your, in, your industry was impacted or you lost a lot of employees or, or something, but, um, or you, you had a reduction in force, but then if, if six months later or nine months later, a year later, you're still doing that, you have just, and I promise you, nobody knows that that message is still being played and nobody hears it. It is the, it is the worst thing to hear today. It be, because of the pandemic, 
um, you know, call vol you know, wait times will be longer than expected. We apologize. And and I said, I call, call contact centers all the time. So I will tell you that most of the time that I hear that, the delay is nothing. Like I heard it just yesterday and it said, it didn't say the pandemic, but it said due to recent events, which is the same thing that they've been playing for two years, uh, wait times will be longer than expected. We apologize for the delay. And as soon as it finished, it heard the little ring and somebody answered. I was like, there's no delay. It was a six second, six second wait time. Um, but yeah, and everybody's doing that and they don't get a pass. They do not. It's been two years. You should be able to forecast your volume. Two and a half years, right? Yeah, I two mean, and a half years. It's been 30 months at yeah. this point. You, it's a lifetime ago. Yeah, <laughs> you should have figured it out by now. Yeah, I do think that people, uh, some organizations uh, use that as an excuse for yeah. what other issues they, they may be experiencing. Um, by the way, like, can I just say, I have always told agents that no one calls contact centers just for fun. And apparently I'm wrong because you exist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I used to say that people never call contact centers just to say, thank you, you're doing a great job. But that was, uh, before I got into the pest control industry, when I worked in the pest control industry for almost nine years, we got calls every single day, literally every single day, somebody would call, people would call, not just somebody. We're in an organization that took a million contacts a year. And every day we were getting calls that said, I just wanted to say thank you to my technician, or I just wanted to, to, I mean, to just give literally just to give kudos. And, um, in my previous experience in healthcare and telecom and banking, financial services, and that certainly never happened. But yeah, there is at least one person calling for fun. <laughs> All yeah, uh, I I will say that has to be like the best environment when most of your calls are people saying thank you, thank you, thank well, you. Well, maybe not most, but, but but I mean there are some, and that's that's never happened in any other industry. Partly uh, because every other industry has created so many barriers to get into a human that nobody would ever do it. <laughs> well. Uh, having had an ant problem taken care of by my pest control company, I understand awesome. where they're coming from because awesome. <laughs> those are big deals. Are. Hey, I always said this. So I spent all the many years in a bunch of different industries and I thought I understood customer empathy and understanding customers. And that was until I got into the pest control industry. And then I thought, wait, we are sending men and women to your home. And often to parts of your home where you have never been. And that requires an entirely different level of customer empathy, customer listening, customer understanding than anything I had ever been through in my life. Yeah. And, right, I mean, your your home was a very private space for yeah. most people, right? And so to have someone coming in there and really going into all parts of it is, for some people, almost like an invasion, but it's better than the invasion of insects that they're experiencing yeah. or, or other, other pests. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier uh, that there was an explosion of companies trying to uh, be innovative and come up with new ways to help hiring, particularly for remote hiring. But regardless of of where you are today, because a, a lot of companies are either hybrid or they've gone back to brick and mortar, some have just stayed uh, all work at home. Regardless of that, what kind of tools should companies 
absolutely be using in part of their pre-hire recruiting and, and hiring and onboarding processes. Well, I'm going to actually go back to what I talked about earlier about effort and friction at the candidate application level. And I'm going to say they should, uh, they can deploy a ton of different tools to figure out, you know, like assessments <clears throat> and trying to find out, um, uh, it, make people go through testing. But in my experience, all that is going to do, that is going to, uh, and I've seen it, I've seen a couple of iterations of this through the last couple of decades, that will do more to homogenize your workforce than it will to give you a better candidate. Mm. And what I mean by that is at the end of that experience, you have everybody that looks the same, that sounds the same, and and certainly like where we are in California and the city that I live in is one of the most diverse um, cities in the entire country. And so uh, hiring in this area, you want your you want your employees to look and sound and act and come from the places where your where your customers will. And I'm always a little leery of putting too many assessments and technologies, you know, making people take a disk profile, although I'm a fan of disk or, or PI um, uh, test just to kind of place them for one that causes um, uh, that causes some undue stress and burden to the team member. Like if if you're going to review their experience and you have a well thought out interview, um, I think that will that makes more difference than anything. And and to the the very long answer to your very short question, I would say make the candidate application experience the simplest you can make it as bare bones, get as the, the least amount of information that your organization is able to get, and then get them into your system to be able to do some kind of scoring. Um, and look, sometimes in my prior role, if we posted a position, we were going to hire a class of 10 team members, we would get 250 applications in just a week or so. And so we would generally only leave it open for a week. But having a very well thought out, very deliberate um, interview process, I think that is worth far more than any technology you can put up front. And I have seen that pay dividends. And what I mean by that is understand who's going to ask what questions, how are you going to um, how are you going to pull everybody back together to get the feedback? Is everybody going to have the exact same interview experience? Putting time and effort and energy into making that a very deliberate, very structured process is far more valuable than putting tons of technology in front of the um, candidate. But then after that, I'll say, then the then you get a ton of bang for your buck if you put that technology into a, into a damn good onboarding um, and day one experience um, technologies. So anything where you because people are onboarding electronically anything where they can they can do their w4 and their i9 um digitally anything that they can like the things we used to do in brick and mortar set up their their um direct deposit day one you know even submit a picture for um for their company badge or for the company intranet and things like that and there are a ton of tools out there that um, um that make that seamless and that's where you're going to get far more um, far more uh, advantaged. And then the other thing I'll add to that is any technology that'll that'll onboard people to systems with usernames and passwords um, uh, sooner uh, is better because in, in any large organization, you know, starting on day one and then not having access to anything, especially when you're in a group and you're in a training class, um, that just, that, that's just mind boggling. But uh, yeah, that I would put the emphasis on building a very well-structured meaningful, deliberate interview process. I think that that will get you far more. 
you brought up something just there at the end too that i think is in fact more important now if you are training in a remote or virtual environment and that is the the system access piece because when you're in a brick and mortar environment uh I, and i can still do this virtually i can i can show you things but you could uh, as I used to call it, have someone come up and drive, right? So that they're getting hands-on experience. Um, depending on the technology you're using, you might be able to screen share and give them control, but it's always better when they can follow along and do those things and access those systems themselves. And yeah. so that system access is absolutely critical. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm not going to mention the company name, but I have a friend uh, I've known for many, many years, and he recently went to work um, for a technology company that uh, as a contractor, but everybody would know both his employer and the company where he's a contractor for every, these are um, international technology organizations, and he was there for three weeks. Um, before he had system access. And um, then they sent him a laptop and it was the wrong laptop to access that client's um, network. And uh, you think about, and he's a systems engineer and, and, and it's just mind boggling, but that kind of stuff happens in contact centers. Um, and it's one of those things, if you get the ball rolling again, we talked about earlier, we can, we're damn good at forecasting. We say, we're going to need this volume in week 23 of the year, 2023. Let's back that up. How long does it take to onboard and train? How long does it recruit? When do we need to get equipment shipped? And then, um, uh, you can, and especially as many times as we've been through this the last two and a half years, we should be able to execute on that pretty good. Yeah. And that onboarding experience. I don't think people understand how critical that is to your retention. Oh yeah. Both in the short and the long term, because that is like that's the that's the first date, man. <laughs> yep. Yep. If that and first date doesn't go well, I'll, you I'll might get you kicked to the curb. I'll tell you this. So Everything we do in my organizations is very deliberate. We ask and we ask questions. Why do we do that? Why, why is there a reason? And if sometimes we say, let's, let's try it a different way. And I will tell you one of my little secrets that always makes HR teams scratch their head. And sometimes I've been in organizations that told me I can't do this. If I can, in the brick and mortar days, new hires always started on a Friday. Full stop. We don't start on Monday ever. And there's a reason. And it's exactly what you just said, Rob. The first day, here's what we wanted to do. And my last organization, brick and mortar, was beautiful. The, 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 the most beautiful building I've ever worked in, in my life. And so day one, we had some goals. And we said, here's the goals. We want you to know where the kitchen is. We want you to know where all the coffee makers are. Uh, every coffee maker in the building. We want you to know where the restrooms are. We want you to know our evacuation and safety plan. And that's it. And we want you to know where you're going to come on Monday to start training. And that's our goal. And one of the questions I always asked our new hires was uh, on that first day um, or on the, the Monday following, I'd say, what, if you don't mind sharing, what did you tell your friends and family about your job? And it's, you get great insights, but the, the, the difference between starting on a Monday and starting on a Friday is you have given them an extra day pay 
but you have also given them a weekend where they don't have to stress. Because if, imagine if you're starting a job on a Monday, you're like, oh, man, what am I, what am I going to wear? What am I going to do? Man, it's, it's, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm not going to get any sleep. But you start them on a Friday and you say, oh, by the way, Fridays, you know, everybody wears jeans. It's, you know, we have donuts and bagels in the kitchen. And then they show up on Friday and everybody knows because everybody in the building knows my team starts on Friday. And everybody's giving everybody high fives pre-pandemic and everybody's introducing themselves. And then you have this energy because it's a Friday. And then again, all they know is this is where the building is. I got my, my W4I9. I got all that done. And it's very deliberate so that they have that, that week. are like, man, I just started this new job and I feel good. I met people. Well, when we went to virtual, we tried to do it on a Friday, the very first class. And it was a disaster. <laughs> because none of the technology, some of the things like our single sign on to some things didn't work on the first day. So we just said, okay, we're going to start them on Thursday. And then it became, it, it was just, a, so then Thursday was just a, a day to, if you were local-ish, you could drive in, get your computer, get it set up in the building and then go home. If you were uh, further away, we would ship it to you. We'd get on Zoom just as an introduction, get to know you. And then that Friday, was a little lighter day, but it was that same kind of concept that you didn't have, you weren't like rushing to get there Monday at eight o'clock kind of thing. And, and being deliberate about that, that was, um, we saw that with have a huge impact because you're right, that first day, like that first day you want them to leave, like feeling like, man, I feel great about this. And not that you can't do that on a Monday, but I have had much more success doing that on a Friday. Yeah, that's really insightful. And I think, what organizations should just do is always be willing to think outside the box. And as you say, right, be very intentional about it. What am I trying to accomplish? And how does this help me accomplish that? Yep. So let's talk about uh, the bottom line. Uh, this is definitely in the news. Let's talk about wages. Yeah. Uh, how, how have you seen that impact hiring in the contact center world? Well, I'm in California, so um, <laughs> I can say that that is it, it has impacted us, us on the coasts, both coasts um, um, to a different level than maybe the, um, um, the, the, the rest of the nation, which the rest of the nation where the majority of those contact centers are, by the way. Um, but I can say this. So when we uh, minimum wage changed to $15 an hour and we had a, a stair step to get there. Right. And so one of the things that I did several years ago was I said, everybody in my organization will get an increase every this hourly will get an increase in step with that minimum wage. And that took a long time to get approved because it was, it, it, it was not, um, at first it made sense, but then we looked at the numbers like this is going to cost us real money. We said, we understand that. But the, if somebody is at, um, when minimum wage was, was $11 an hour and they were at $15 an hour, if, if we just left it to their own devices, then that, would, then that would shrink, right? So we always said, we never want any pressure from anybody feeling like they're close to minimum wage. It didn't matter if they were at 19 or $20 an hour, they would get a uh, the same incremental increase, we called it a market, in, um, uh, market increase, which is different than merit. And every time minimum wage went up, they went up. Everybody that was hourly, um, all, all the team members on the phone. So uh, we did that and, and we did that. We planned that several years ago without the pandemic in, the, in our mind. And when the pandemic happened, we realized, thank goodness we did it because we couldn't in, in, in our market when we were hiring brick and mortar, 
they were we were hiring for um you know maybe at like eighteen dollars an hour seventeen to eighteen dollars an hour and there were organizations that were saying we're hiring at fifteen fifty because minimum wage was at fifteen dollars an hour and we said no we're going to bump it up more we're going to bump it up more and we realized that uh, it's certainly in the the market where we are you get what you pay for um, and what I mean by that is people aren't going to apply for your job if you're paying a dollar or two over minimum wage. And even if that might be 17 or $18 an hour, and look, I have, we talked earlier about you being from Kansas and I, um, uh, I've talked to some people in the, uh, the ACCP, um, on both the Missouri side and the Kansas side. And I'm, I'm aware enough about Kansas's, um, uh, labor laws to know that you could probably fit it on an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. And there's not many. <laughs> and, uh, certainly as it comes to pay, I think they might just be at the federal minimum wage. And, um, and so uh, that's a, a, a challenge for recruiting. Um, but out here, that is uh, that is very tough. But what I have seen more than anything is contact centers, uh, team members that want to work remote. In the beginning of the pandemic, there are people that worked in California that said, oh, I can work for a Florida company or, an, or a or Georgia company or a Texas company. Um, and now that's, uh, I, I still spend a lot of time looking at contact center team member jobs posting everywhere, Indeed, LinkedIn, all the job sites, because I want to see what the competition is. And more and more of them are starting to say, you know, we only want in state or in region or in time zone. And sometimes that's a way to, for those other states not to get California, um, uh, pay California um, wages. And, and sometimes that's, it's also, you know, our laws around um, time off around leaves of absence, those things um, for contacts, large contact centers can make it prohibitively um, difficult to do business here. And I understand that, but certainly we have seen the wage pressure. We have seen, um, we have seen wages go up. We have seen in the, I, I also am um, sit on the steering committee for the Northern California Contact Center Association. Half of our members are public institutions. So state, local, county governments, um, some federal and the rest are, are smaller contact center operations, you know, a hundred seats or, you know, slightly over or under, not any of the mega centers. And they've all seen, at least in the private sector, have seen wages continue to skyrocket. And I think that makes California a challenging landscape. Again, not necessarily just California, but the West Coast and the East Coast, I think, um, especially the Northeast probably share a little bit of the same of that. But it's, it's, it's starting to get um, to where... And I think it's the reason why most contact centers, at least the ones that I um, know people at and have seen in California are still remote because it has been, although everybody else seems to want to get people in the office, you know, every, every week or so there's articles about, you know, large tech companies out here that are trying to get people back a couple of days a week. I don't think contact centers are doing that much out here um, because that becomes a, that becomes a, a retention tool. Like, okay, well, you know, we may not pay you $25 an hour, but we will let you be fully remote. And I think that's a benefit. I think that that's the reason we, at least in California, might be seeing um, far slower move to hybrid and far slower move back to brick and mortar. Yeah. You know, I can speak to the Midwest a little bit as well, obviously, you know, being in St. Louis, I think what, what we've seen is as the, you know, Amazons and Walmarts who are a totally different business, right? You are definitely in a building, whether that's as a, a store associate or you're working in a warehouse, whatever the case may be. But as they start to move 
toward, you know, saying, well, we're, we're just going to pay 15 minimum across the board um, and then make some adjustments from there, depending on geography, right? I mean, I'm sure they pay more than that on the West Coast. Um, but that pushes up the, the pressure I, because at the end of the day, a lot of times contact centers are competing for those same people that might be considering those jobs. And so, you know, uh, yes, if I'm work from home, that's a big advantage and I might be able to pay a little bit less because you don't have to drive, you don't have to pay gas to get there, you don't have maintenance, you don't have a commute, whatever the case may be. Um, but if I can make $15 here or I can only make $10 over here and it's work from home, like I'm going to make $15. That's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I've even seen local government uh, really struggle because they're, you know, the they have their own contact center people for different things like uh, unemployment, for instance. Yep. And um, I think they're only paying like $10, $11 an hour. And then they oh, wonder wow. why they can't keep people. <laughs> well, Because that's not really the, the prevailing wage anymore, regardless of what the minimum wage right. is. You're competing with the prevailing yeah, yeah, minimum the wage. The, uh, those market forces are are driving things. So, I think, um, you know, if if you're struggling with attrition, there are a lot of things to look at, but certainly wages are one of them. Yeah. So aside from wages and doing onboarding differently, what are some other things that contact centers can do to be more attractive as employers to be, you know, employer of choice? Well, uh, I love this question because it's one of the things that I think that we as an industry should always be asking ourselves. And one of the things I've learned years ago is to ask people what they're interested in and then you learn um, pretty quickly uh, as trends change. And I'll tell you this, um, you mentioned earlier that in some markets you have, uh, you're, you're competing for the, the same candidates that might be applying for warehouse jobs, where where I live, we are the um, second busiest uh, transportation and logistics hub in the United States, second only to Houston. In our proximity to the Port of Stockton, the Bay Area ports and the freeway system, there are more warehouses here um, per uh, per square mile than virtually anywhere else in North America, um, which is good because my wife is in that business. Uh, so uh, it, it's good for our family. But um, we have seen in the contact center space and certainly where I was and then um, in some other organizations that I have um, had some conversations with, we don't we don't draw as much from that. But it is so important going back to being super deliberate to find out who your best candidates are. And I mean, to generalize that persona, we all talk about like, let's identify the personas of our customer to do a journey map, but what about your candidate? Like what's the story of your candidates? And that will help guide you into where are these people? Where are they? Where can you market to them? How can you help them join your organization? And one of the things that um, I found in my last organization, our bread and butter, our best choice or best chance of getting incredible candidates were people from restaurants and retail. Here's why. We paid a little bit more. Well, oftentimes, if it was uh, faster, we paid a lot more. But we paid more, but we gave them a thing that their restaurant and retail jobs could never do. We gave them a set schedule. 
Mm-hmm. And it was super important to us and our team that we gave people a set schedule, even though we were seven days a week. And during the week, it was in the la- first shifts at 5, 3 in the morning, last shift ends at 8 p.m. And we worked Saturdays, Sundays, even though they weren't the greatest hours, you knew what they were. And uh, having worked re- restaurants and retail before I started contact centers and having worked in some contact centers, but we didn't have that luxury years and years ago. I realized that that is a huge benefit. And when we realized that that's a benefit to our candidates, then restaurant and retail people were who we were focused on. Not only that, but we have often said, if you work in a in a Taco Bell anywhere in Northern California, we want you to apply for us, our last job, because something about their training and, and the way that they um, hired people, the Taco Bells, and there's a couple of different franchisees. We had incredible results from people that came from Taco Bell. <laughs> Um, but even, you know, people that came from Starbucks, people that came from full service restaurants, people that came from retail, especially retail that had any seasonality to it, because they would realize that we, although we have seasonality, the seasonality in in our business was we had unlimited overtime in the summer that was voluntary. (laughs) And it didn't mean that they were getting laid off in the winter. Um, but understanding who and why those things were important. So we, we put a ton of attention on, let's make sure we get a set schedule and you're going to have that set schedule until we do enough hiring that then you get next. And, you know, the only thing we based on tenure was your schedule selection. And we were very clear about that. Everybody knew, and we were able to get people to be interested because they knew, and they knew that nine weeks from now on Tuesday, they were going to work until eight. And then Wednesday and Thursday, they were off. Like they knew that. But the other thing we found was if we really want to compete, especially in the work from home when people can work for a ton of other contact centers, we want to be the best. And here's another number that I don't know too many contact centers that measure this. What is your PTO approval rate? And we want it to be the highest approver of PTO of any of our competitors, competitors meaning anywhere that you could work, which meant if you work and you had a you had split days off, let's say you had Tuesdays and Sundays off. Um, and then you said, well, you know that that's your schedule and it might be a schedule for four or five months until we hire enough people where we start doing schedule shifts or shift changes. Well, if you know that eight weeks from now, you're going to um, work Wednesday and Thursday, but you have a, a something going on, put your request in. And if you put it in three months in advance, there's a 99% chance it's going to get approved. And here's why. If it doesn't work, if it does not, if we put it in the system and it's like, no, we have too many people off that day, the uh, leadership team will then fight for you and advocate for you to find a way to get you to have that day off. They'll find shift trades. They'll find other people. They'll find, a, they will find a way. And we got to be where even with it, when it was within a couple of weeks of the request, 80 plus percent were approved. And what that created was this culture where People were like, oh man, I know it's short notice, but this thing just came up and I want to take next week off, but there are two days that I can't make it. And then they'd, we, if we approved, declined it, we would decline it. And then we would go find you a person. Because I found that it was easier for us to find. And somebody would say, okay, I'll, I'll work half of that day and half of this day. We found somebody else to work this one and that one. And what that meant was the person that got the benefit, the next time they heard that that Joanne needed next Friday off. She's like, you know what? Joanne really saved my skin last, last month. I'm going to, and, and it just creates this thing where we would tell people and we tell people in the, in the new hire process, look, here's, here's what your schedule will be. And it'll be that for likely four to five or six months. 
And if you need a day off, you tell us before you get hired, we'll approve every one of them. Everything gets approved before hire, no matter what it is. And then if you get hired and something comes up and you want to put in a day off, we have the we have a astronomically high approval rate. It's not a hundred, but it's pretty darn close. And people cared about that time more than uh, uh, virtually more than anything. Pay is important. You you have to pay people, but outside of that, that pay that time off flexibility was far more because we we can't be flexible, right? This is not an asynchronous job. Calls come in, texts come in, emails come in. You have to have people there. But as close to week as we can get to making it feel like you're, it's asynchronous and that you're going to get your time off request, that has a ton of value. Yeah, I, I also think it just speaks to valuing that work-life balance, which we yeah. hear a lot about. And when you as an organization make an effort to understand that people have lives and they have other things they want to do besides their job, and do your best to accommodate those things within reason, um, that becomes really attractive. Yeah. It's funny you brought up work-life balance because I, I always, um, years and years and years ago, I had a boss, uh, Alex Mitchell, that told me uh, I was working too late. I was a senior manager in a uh, contact center. This was 20 plus years ago. And I was there really late one night and he walked up and he handed me, tapped me on the shoulder, he handed me a piece of paper. And I, I just, I went to unfold it. And he said, no. Nope, just wait. And then he left and then I unfolded it. And it was, uh, remember the, the, the hangman game? And it, it basically had two letters filled out, but it was clear that it was go home. <laughs> and I always remember that. And he taught me, he said, man, forget work-life balance. It's, it should be work-life separation. And so I always tell, when we went work from home, I always told my team, like, I have to remember, we talked about work from home, work from anywhere, work remotely. It's more than that. It's work invasion, right? It's now, we have mm -hmm. now invaded your space, especially if they're on webcam during meetings, yeah. we have invaded their space. And uh, having that separation uh, is crucial and being able to tell people, yeah, if you need um, the third Tuesday of next month off, we're going to fight like hell to make sure that you get that off. And people absolutely value that. Yeah, 100%. Matt, we have talked about some amazing things today. And hey, organizations, I hope that you gained something from this today. And Matt, thank you so much for, for joining me and sharing these insights. It's been great. Yeah, thank you, Rob. I very much enjoyed the conversation. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of Next in Q. Oh, we'll see you again next week. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy To and is produced by me, Rob Dwyer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please feel free to subscribe or rate in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But more importantly, please tell just one person about this podcast. Word of mouth is the best way for people to discover new content. Thank you for listening.